Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Buffalo What's Next is on summer break and we'll return with new content shortly. As we take this break, please continue to tune in to WBFO Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. and 9 p.m. for producer picks of some of our favorite episodes of Buffalo What's Next. How can we afford not to talk about race? About education. About segregation. About humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On today's episode of Buffalo What's Next, Summertime Producer Picks, we highlight two segments from previous shows. Thomas and White speaks with one of the curators of Buffalo and West New York African American History Group on Facebook, historian Michelle Raglan, from October 19th of last year. Then, from November 15th of last year, Jay Moran talks to Tiffany Lewis of the Confident Girl Mentoring Program. The two talk about the scarcity of mentoring programs for young women. First, Thomas O'Neill White with historian Michelle Raglan from October 19th of last year. Michelle, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. The Making Black America Through the Grapevine series has, has been playing on PBS, uh, giving non-black America a glimpse into different facets of black life in America from Reconstruction to now. What are your thoughts on the series so far? Um, I find it interesting. I really like the series a lot. I'm a fan of Lewis, I mean Lewis Gates, sorry. And the information that he put out there is just basically information that I kind of, you know, research myself locally. And I just found it so, you know, fascinating because it is our African-American history. It is. And and um, what do you think connects or what do you, what do you think is relatable um, from the series when we talk about informal economies, grassroots organizations and cultural innovations uh, that African-Americans have made, you know, since Reconstruction. Um, How is that relatable to the black experience in Buffalo? Is it is it all is it all encompassing? Is it all the same or is Buffalo a little different? To me, it's encompassing because, you know, once uh, the migration started, we had two phases in the first phase. So a lot of people migrated to Buffalo um, from the south. And so um, everything that he covered on the series was an, a Buffalo experience as well. So we had a lot of people coming here, you know, looking for a better life, looking to, you know, contribute to the economy, to do better, to, you know, to do much for the community once they got here. And I wanted to uh, ask you about the the impact, the social impact, the economic impact of those uh, two northern migrations of African Americans, how 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 did that impact look in Buffalo? The impact looked great. I mean, it was um, a lot of people that came here came here for jobs. They came here primarily to get a job, to better uh, have a better life, housing, and probably I I could say escape like uh, the the uh, segregated South um, to move in neighborhoods and to set up a community. And to build on it. And that's what I found when I did research Buffalo's African-American history. Uh, a lot of people came here and they set up the community. They set up primarily in the Ellicott District. They set up neighborhoods. Um, they contributed to the economy. We start building, you know, within the neighborhood, like, um, 
you know, stores, uh, grocery stores, um, barbershops, uh, you name it. There was a lot of growth within the black community during the first phase of the migrate or uh, northern migration. And that helped create the black middle class. It, sur- it surely did. It surely did. And anything of interest, any interesting invention or innovation that came from Buffalo's African-American community back in those days? I mean, I'm talking, you know, between like the, the 1920s through the 1950s. Oh, yes. There was many inventions. Um, there was a lot of uh, people that came here. So it was like... Um, Cornelius Ford, you know, he was the first African American to do the, the uh, head up the uh, cattle uh, division. Um, there were so many people that came here and, and and prospered in the community and set up, um, like I said, different type of uh, businesses. And so, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, Who was the inventor of chicken wings? <laughs> I know there's a lot of. There's a lot of, uh, you know, differing opinions on that. Well, that's John um, Young. Um, he he did start with the invention of the, well, it was the mambo sauce, okay? So it was the mambo sauce, the wings, the whole wing uh-huh. that he, uh, he, he invented here. He started here, I should say. And so, yeah, he did start the uh, chicken wing. The mambo wing, the buffalo wing. The buffalo wing, uh, yes. yes, he did. <laughs> uh, he had a, actually he had a some type some type of like I would say um, friendship or with the uh, person that invented the wing that you know the anchor bar um, that you know that family. He was a frequent visitor of uh, John Young. Okay. So um, yeah, so he he did um, invent the chicken wing here. Um, I, I should say that covered it with the mambo sauce mm-hmm. as a favorite in the community. The Great Migration, the second part, how, how important was the, the Negro Motorist Green Book uh, for in that second Great Migration North? Um, and what's, what's Buffalo's part in that oh it's very important because you know when many people traveled across the united states and they wanted to stop and of course when they you know traveled and they came to buffalo they had to make sure that they were in a safe environment they had to make sure that they found safe accommodations and so buffalo's role was to actually you know be another northern city that made sure that you know people had a safe environment once they traveled to the area. And so, you know, a lot of people that came here was able to, you know, have accommodations, um, go to stores that were, um, you know, that they felt safe going to, barbershops, hair salons, hotels, nightclubs, you know, several different places. Yeah, and it, 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 even back then, you know, Buffalo was a city of good neighbors. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Once again, you're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White here with historian Michelle Ragland. Buffalo and Western New York African American History Group on Facebook. This is something that you developed? Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, it's a social media group. I started it back in 2014. 
Um, I just started researching a lot of Buffalo uh, African-American history, and I thought, what better way to, you know, connect with people would be on social media, on Facebook. And so I've primarily just, you know, researched a lot of African-American history here in Buffalo. Um, In person, like I'll go to, you know, places, you know, such as the uh, uh, Buffalo History Museum, um, anywhere that I can obtain information, if I have to go to the recording, the deed of records, <laughs> the deed of records, uh-huh. I'll go there, um, and I'll just research online, or I'll just you know do a lot of research. I'll you know look at people like that I know historically were doing the research prior to me, like uh, Monroe Fordham, um, uh, Eva uh, um, Knowles. She was a historian and a nurse, the first African American nurse to graduate from. Um, a nursing school here in Buffalo. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she did put out a book back in 1986. So I used that book as my, you know, um, my research. You know, okay. I bought the book. It's She made the book. She put it together, and she kind of laid the foundation kind of for me, I would say, to just know who the people were because a lot of the information in her book is information that, you know, is from the, like, 1920s, 1930s, 40s, 50s. Yeah, because so. I was going to ask you, how how far back does your research go, and, and how, how much time do you <laughs> put into it? Well, I go back, my research go way back to when I could pinpoint the first African-American to the area. So that's, like, in the late 1700s. Wow. Uh, Joseph Hodge. Wow. African-American, he came here. And I know there were several other people, but... For, for the reason that he became uh, popular, he was like a surveyor with uh, uh, the man that discovered, I, I can't think of his first name, Cleveland, the city of Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. So he did a surveyor for him. He opened a trading post with his uh, Native American wife. Um, so he had, you know, he did a lot of different things in the area before he left and headed down to the southern tier. And last, he was traced uh, possibly in Canada. So it goes back to the 1700s late 1700s and then the 1800s i call that's the i call that period the great escape like when a lot of um people were escaping slavery bondage so Mm -hmm. i go back that far what's your favorite thing to research i mean you're obviously researching history but is there a certain something within the history locally that you are always going back to Yes, the migration, the Great Northern Migration. I continuously go back to the migration because that's a period of time when a significant, I would say the largest percentage of African Americans that moved to Buffalo. So when a lot of people moved here during that time, during the first phase and the second phase. Yeah, for people who don't know, can you can you break down the the first phase and the second phase? Like what what the the, the time frames? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so the first phase started around, I would say, the second decade of the 20th century, so around 1915. So 1915 to about, ni- to, to the be- like the be- before, right before World War um, II. So that was like the first phase. So I would say a good 30 years of migrating. And then as the war started and then more people started migrating, so I would say the war around like 19, the early 1940s, so in like 1940 until ni- the 1960s. Okay. So, and, yeah. and and the reasons for those migrations were because manufacturing jobs and, and such were opening up into, obviously, 
flee Jim Crow racism. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Industrialization yes. Yes. and Jim Crow. So the jobs, the jobs were significant to why people were moving here. The whole, the entire family, you know, first the father may have come or the, you know, brother may have come or the sister, you know, and everybody would, you know, say, hey, come on up to Buffalo, you know, and I call Buffalo the the, you know the the city by the lake, but it was the one of the one of the cities that was the gateway to freedom. You know, mm-hmm. uh, during that time, during the well, during slavery. But then in the uh, phase of the northern migration, I would say Buffalo was the city to escape the Jim Crow, the segregated South. So yeah, I wanted to ask you um, about these clubs. The Vermilion Room and other clubs like it. I know that's that's more recent history um, in Buffalo, but it's history nonetheless. Um, tell me about the the Vermilion Room. What was that? What, what what was it? It was a nightclub. Actually, it was it was a nightclub um, that was uh, upstairs over the uh, skating rink. So it was uh, over New Skateland. So it's uh, the saying was you you go up to get down. You're going, you're going upstairs to get down to have fun, have a good time. And so many people enjoy themselves. I'm talking about celebrities. I'm talking about our local uh, community here. And then you had, you know, Rick James was from here. So when he would come to town, the Stone City Band, you had Stevie Wonder. You had so many different people that went up to get down here in the African-American community. And so, yeah, that was the party scene for Buffalo. It was where you had a good time. And the owner was Trennis. Uh, Goggins, he he owned that um, nightclub, so he definitely did a lot for the community with that nightclub, you know. It's very popular, and people have so many memories of having a good time in that club. Are there other places, were there other places like the Vermilion Room um, that that mainly African Americans congregated, but that also brought in People, I mean, obviously Rick James is from here, but the Stevie Wonders, the 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 big music artists around that came came around town to Buffalo to party. Definitely, um, it would be I would say um, the Bonton, the um, oh my goodness, so many so many clubs. I know one was the Bonton, and the other was the um, the Playlocks. Um, what was that? The club that was over there by uh, Jefferson, the Pine Grill. That's what it was. People were probably like, oh, How could yeah. you forget the Pine Grill? I'm like, ah, the Pine Grill. Everybody know about the Pine Grill, the Revelot. I'm talking about BB King. Wow. I'm talking about um, so many people that came to that club. You know, I'm trying to think right now because there was so many back then that came to. The Pine Grill, the Revelot, um, and they would call that the Jazz Circle, like that area right there, East Ferry, and Jefferson. That was like the, mm-hmm. the the Jazz Circle because you had the Pine Grill, and then down the street right there you had the uh, Revelot, and so you had like Billy Nunn locally, local talent playing there, and okay. then you had people that like, I would say like George Benson. Um, you had so many people, Al Green, Aretha Franklin. You know, we had there were so many people, and then you had your local talent. So it was so many celebrities that were make trying to, you know, you know, get uh, notoriety to to become big, to to you know, to make a name for themselves. They came there, and so yeah, it was a little 
triangle, circle, jazz circle. <laughs> you are listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White here with historian Michelle Raglan. Michelle, what sparked your interest in local African American history? Are, are you from Buffalo? Yes, I am. Born and raised? Born and raised. What sparked that interest? Mm, I think the fact that I see a lot of history here in Buffalo. And as a little girl growing up, I didn't know about a lot of the history that I had actually researched. And so uh, once social media became, you know, the the place where everybody was going on to, you know, research or Google and look at information, it became so easy to look up information. And so I was looking at information and always, honestly, I'll go back to my youth. I always loved history. I always loved social studies. I mean, I was just, that class was just so easy. I was, I didn't know why my teacher knew, I guess she knew. Why was it so easy? I, I, why could I just pass it? Like, because it was like it, it didn't feel like work. And so, once I um got on social media, like a lot of people, I saw that you know here in Buffalo, I'm like, wow, you know, I want to know what's going on or what happened to us back, you know, way before I was born. And so, that's when I started doing a lot of research. And I'm, I must tell you, I'm very surprised at all the information that I'm able to research because. It's not, some of it's not even out here at, you know, that people know about. Some of it's unknown or forgotten. So, you know, I do my best to try to make sure we don't forget anybody, forget any places, people, and, you know, contributions that the African-American community made to Buffalo. Are you worried at all that we may be losing that history or forgetting that history? I do worry because you have to research. You have to take the time. You have to make time. And I'm not going to, I'm going to be honest, it is time consuming for me. I take time. It is time to do this. But I just want to make sure that the information is told and shared with the next generations and even the generations that are here now. Because some people hear about their history and they don't know. I look information up. I don't know. You know, sometimes I'm surprised. I'm like sitting there like, Oh, I'm shocked, you know, but I, I, that's what keeps me going. That's what inspires me. How, how are you going to pass that history on though? How are how to, to, to have a kid, maybe 12, 13 years old, kind of have that history ingrained in themselves as they, as they move forward in this area and, you know, kind of have an, a, a understanding of like this is who I am. This is where I. This is what I came from. How do you do that? I want to make sure, you know, put it all in book form. You know, put it in the book. You know, let the kids read the book. Hopefully, if if the school, you know, get on a level with the school system here, perhaps maybe put something out that could be in the curriculum for the schools about Buffalo's Black history, so the kids will know. Because if it's there and it's part of the curriculum, the kids will know, you know. But, of course, like I said, a book, even a coffee table book or a book of, you know, just to let the kids know the history of Buffalo's African-American community. And, yes, workshops, you know, I'm open to that, you know, going to do presentations, talking to the kids in the schools, whatever it takes just to make sure that the kids know their history here. When you've done presentations, what, is, what does that look like? What's your audience? Mm-hmm. Um, I went... I had a presentation. I joined other people here locally. I wasn't. I was asked. I was invited. 
So it's like you go talk to different people at different functions, venues. Um, I was invited to talk to the uh, Jesse Clipper post regarding Jesse Clipper. I did research on him. So the club, they asked me to come and talk and share and just, you know, uh, talk about Jesse Clipper, go back and do his bi biography and talk about his beginnings, his humble beginnings until he had, he was the first African-American here in Buffalo uh, to die in World War One. But before he was even, you know, in the military, he was a performer. He was a vaudeville performer with his wife. So he was performing with them, talking about great people, well-known people back in the early 1900s and the tens and the teens. But then he came to Buffalo and he got connected with the Color Musicians Club, and he joined a, um, the military. And, and unfortunately, he went over there to, you know, fight in World War One, and that's when he he mm -hmm. died. And so he's buried there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How how important is a place like the Colored Musicians Club? A lot of history there. Very important. A lot of history because it was formed because. The African Americans were not people were not able to, you know, were invited to come to other locals, you know, and mm -hmm. not you know able to go there because of you know discrimination and you know so they had to build their own and so when they did that, that set the that set the tone for the next I would say, so they started like in the nineteen the teens the like late, late nineteen hundred, well the teens and early twenties and so. They're still open now. Mm -hmm. They're still going strong. Unbelievable. They had all these people to come here, you know. So it was nothing for, like, uh, Duke Ellington or, you know, Cab Calloway or Ella Fitzgerald, all the, some of the faces you see on the outside, on the, on the... Uh, on the Freedom on the, Wall. On the wall. Not on the wall, but on the Color Resistance oh, Club color itself. Yes. You see these people because these people were here in the new uh, Color Resistance Club performing, you know. I know some people say, oh, it was, you know, because they had, you know, because they, they had to me. And I go back and I research and I read. They had a good time in there. They were having a good time in there, you know. They were like, okay. And even like Louis Armstrong, his wife, you know, performed here at the uh, Little Harlem. Mm -hmm. He performed at the Vendome, the Club Vendome, where the Core Brothers owned the uh, Vendome, the Vendome nightclub. It was on Clinton. So then it moved on Sycamore. But you had... Sammy Davis Jr., you had Louis Armstrong, you had so many people that came through Buffalo and performed in these places. Yeah, uh, African-American entertainment royalty, basically. You could say the royalty, like Lena Horne was in the uh, mm -hmm. color, I mean, was in the uh, Little Harlem. Wow. I mean, it was nothing for all of these people to come to Buffalo and come to Buffalo and perform. And I'm talking about some of them were doing shows for like, okay, here you are, you come in here, you go, oh, my week here in Buffalo. Even in the 1970s, you had Dizzy Gillespie. He's performing, you know? And so it's like that that royalty, that royalty we had and the people that came through Buffalo and performed, mm -hmm. you know, the World Arms. They had so many people, to, Monk, Mm. Was at the World Arms. You know, you had wow. so many people. It's like I could just put all these people down and just tell you all these people that came here and where they performed. And, you know, you have to think about the community. Who was coming out to see them? You know, the advertisements and how people were. And some people were remembering. They were like, oh, yeah, I remember. I was there. I went there that night when he came. I have several people that are alive today, and they, they reminisce and they remember. 
They were like, Josephine Pake, oh, yeah, she came, and she was driving down uh, William Street. Oh, and Billie Holiday, yeah, she came, and she was over there, and she walked across the street on Jefferson, and her her, her husband, her, at the time, Louis McKay, owned a little delicatessen over here. These people came here, and, you know, they left their footprints, and so it's up to us to just make sure we let everyone know that, you know, we had a strong presence, we had royalty, we had, you know, good people here. You must get that a lot, that, oh, I remember this, you know, so-and-so was here and we went to see them. How's your 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 work it has to be well-received by the older generation these days? That's got to be, you know, we, we call it like a throwback. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It, it is. I, I've met several great people, people that I wouldn't have never probably met if I hadn't started doing the... African American history and the research, and going back and um, you know researching the information, bringing it back out, bringing it up, making it a topic of conversation. So a lot of people are coming to me and they're like, Michelle, you know, they're 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 happy to hear it. They want to hear more, and they reminisce and they actually fill in some blanks for me. You know, some information that I don't know because I wasn't alive. You know, they mm-hmm. were here, and they'll fill it in and tell me, Oh yes, we went here and we did that. Oh, and you know. Oh, yes, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Because, you know, as I was growing up, none of these things were in existence anymore, so. The last thing I want to ask you is something I try to ask all my guests, and it's 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 very broad. Um, in your, from your point of view, what does Buffalo need? Well, I guess what we need is just to continue trying to thrive and do better. Um, Me being a historian, I'm going to just be honest and say, if we could just get some of the old school back, we need to bring that back again, you know, especially in the African-American community. Old school sensibilities? Exactly. The sensibilities, the things that worked before, like the migration, the unification, the community building, having, you know, our community thrive, you know, and having all the classes, you know, living together, making, you know, making everything established for ourselves in the community. I just just think we need to just unify, just try to do better, you know, get our community back to where it was, because it's no secret, you know, we're in the north and you hear, oh, the city's up north, this is what happened after the jobs left, like, the plants closed, so a lot of the population left. Mm-hmm. And so we are having a surge in populations. We have, we're having a lot of immigrants move into the area, and they're building, you know. But as a whole, overall, I, I, I think it should be everybody should just, you know, try to do what they can to just make Buffalo grow again. You know, be that Buffalo that it used to be where, you know, people came here and it was like, you know, it was a norm because because now if you say oh this person or that person came here it's like who who's coming here what mm-hmm, before mm-hmm. it was like the norm for so many people to come through and you know just because there was so much opportunity there was opportunity there was jobs you know there yeah. was entertainment mm-hmm. there was things to see so if we can just collectively get that back I think we would do good. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next Thomas O'Neill White in with historian Michelle Raglan Michelle. Thank you again for being with us today. Thank you for having me. That was Thomas O'Neill White with historian Michelle Raglan from October 19th of last year. 
We'll be back with more Buffalo What's Next right here on WBFO. Hey, is this thing on? Test, test, one, two. Sounds great. Let's go. The podcast world is overflowing with more than 750,000 podcasts to choose from. But for great local podcasts, you can now go to one place, the new Amplify BTPM Pods app. Here you can discover content produced in Western New York and Southern Ontario, our own backyard. With a wide variety of genres to choose from, there is something for everyone. Listen to the best independently produced podcasts in the region anywhere, anytime. Download the free Amplify BTPM Pods app wherever you get your apps and begin exploring your local podcast community now. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we end this show with Jay Moran with Tiffany Lewis from November 15th of last year. And good morning and welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. With us, Tiffany Lewis. She is with Confident Girl Mentoring here in Buffalo. Tiffany, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning to you as well. Uh, somebody who is uh, always smiling, you tell me, and uh, <laughs> you haven't disappointed me in the last uh, half an hour since you've been here, which is interesting because with what you deal with, with Confident Girl Mentoring, you're dealing with some young ladies who have experienced trauma. How wide-ranging does that come? So Confident Girl Mentoring is a national brand. So we just don't deal with um, young girls from our inner city. We actually um, empower young girls from North Carolina, from Memphis, Tennessee, Niagara Falls. So it's really a national brand that really promotes and provides exceptional services, uh, trauma healing services to our young ladies. And how do you go about... I guess, making contact with these young ladies. We're talking about maybe somebody who's maybe as young as 12. Absolutely. So our um, young ladies come from um, referrals, word of mouth, schools, uh, communities, um, mostly of color. Uh, we do engage with young girls from, uh, for, from all races, but primarily we deal with black and brown girls. How important is that mentoring opportunity, especially, like you said, for young black and brown girls here in the city of Buffalo. I mean, like you said, you're, you're bigger than that, but at the same time, we like to focus on our community first and foremost. What do you say? So I would say that um, our young girls, when we're talking about in our inner city communities, um, they're faced with far more challenges than maybe we did when we were growing up. So the importance of having a confident girl mentoring organization it not just empowers, but it also instills a greater sense of hope, a greater sense of purpose, and just a greater sense of higher self-esteem, awareness, and to how they can be when they are um, adults. So, Your origin story for creating this is really remarkable. I, I, could you share it with our audience, please? Yes. So Confident Girl Mentoring, um, the journey began about five years ago from a conversation that I had with then a 12-year-old girl. Uh, she was so brave to share with me her personal experiences 
um, dealing with um, sexual abuse um, and some traumas that she had been dealing with. And then at that point, I realized that as I was talking to that young girl, I saw myself in her, mm. knowing that, wow, I wish that I could be like her when I was 12 and how she was so brave to come to a complete stranger and share her experiences. And um, it was about 45 minutes. I drove home in tears like, wow, because after having that conversation with her, she said these words. She said, I need you to come back. She didn't say, I wanted you to come back. She said, I need you to come back. And for me, that was a call for action. And so I went home and I sat at my kitchen table like, what can I do? And from my kitchen table birthed Confident Girl Mentoring, which is now an organization that really helps deal with the traumas that our young girls are facing um, today and to help them be more confident women. I think this is a, there's an obvious answer to this question, but there's no shortage of need here, right? I mean, there's young ladies who need need help and need mentoring. That's tr- That's correct. There's about 2 billion adolescents that are under the age of 30. And unfortunately, one in four of them are growing without mentors. That is an alarming rate. And not to mention that of the mentors that are selected, there's a shortage of black mentors to help mentor these black and brown kids. How important is that? Like you said, you you don't always necessarily deal with just inner city kids and not always uh, young ladies of color, but turn it around. How important is it, though, for a, a young lady of color to look across and see somebody like themselves. Oh, it just also, it gives them a heightened sense of self-worth and a heightened sense of confidence too. Because when you see someone that you think, oh, wow, she made it, you know, that can give you the confidence to say, oh, I can make it too. You know, especially when you're faced with real issues. I have real life experience. So when I am engaging with our young people, it actually opens up a sense of trust for our young girls to say, wait a minute, she went through what I went through. So maybe I can open up to her. And it is interesting how you refer to your experience, some troubling experiences that you had when you were younger, but you don't look at it as some baggage that you're carrying forward. That's true. Like I feel like I have this thing. Like I say, like I'm not a uh, a carrier of my wounds. Like I am a carrier of wisdom, and I'm able to take my experiences and turn them into positive lessons, not just for myself, but also for our young people. Like I choose to live in a place of peace and love and harmony where it may take a younger person longer to get to where I am. It didn't happen overnight, but I do know that my purpose is to heal, to inspire, and to connect our next generation of young people. Can you talk a little bit about growing up in the city of Buffalo, what it was like for you? Mm-hmm. So um, I grew up in uh, the what's called the Cold Spring area, mm-hmm. which is where um, the 514 mass shooting occurred um, to a single mom. You know, my mom, she did such an amazing job with myself and my brother who just recently passed away about a year ago for sickle cell disease. It's fine. And uh, she was an educator and she didn't play. Like, <laughs> like she I remember like some like my punishments were like we had to write essays and things and she would literally red line like my papers 
And like now I really admire that because she just wanted the best for us with little that she had. She was able to be a role model for me and for my brother. And, and I appreciate my mom, you know, for being the woman, the strength that she is today. Yeah, well, um, my wife and I always, often, <laughs> often talk when we had our two kids. We couldn't, A, possibly think of having one more. And B, how it would be to try to do this by yourself to take care of two kids. And so uh, in that regard, I mean, you, you understood, I guess, and probably, like you said, that wisdom that you're bringing forward. You understand that what might be missing in some of these young ladies' lives. Right. Absolutely. Um, a lot of it is hope. You know, a lot of it is, you know, we have to, we teach our kids, oh, okay, well, you have to have confidence. You have to have confidence. But what about hope? You know, that's that's something that if we're thinking about a healed and thriving community, our kids also need hope, you know, and um, purpose and a sense of belonging. And so at Confident Girl Mentoring, we created those spaces, those safe spaces for our young kids to have all those things, hope, healing, and also a sense of connected, uh, excuse me, a sense of connectedness. Um, for them to heal and thrive. Take me inside now. Take me. I'm I, I, I'm a client. I'm a 12 year old girl. <laughs> okay, I'm not. But do you, take me inside though. So I show up at uh, Confident Girl Mentoring, uh, which by the way is over at the Arthur Center, right on uh, Genesee. Right? Yes. Yeah. So right now, um, our uh, we just got a home. Okay. Our home. We've been in there since June. Okay. We we, uh, we dub as an after school program initially, but now because of our services, I think we're we're we are a year round program. Um, I don't like to say program. Programs are, are what sure. we offer. We're an organization that provide unlimited programs to our young people. Uh, so upon entering into our our space, what you'll see is our first, our Confident Minds Library. It's important to bring those literacy skills back into our young people and kind of get them off of that computer world, mm -hmm. um, providing them with cultural sensitive books. Um, then you, if you go to the what, right... I'm just curious, so when you say cultural sensitive books, what, what books seem to resonate with your, your, uh, your girls? Um, books about... Um, Slavery. They love those books. We have those type of books. There's a book on Tesla. We have that too. Um, there's books on Barack Obama. Uh, there's books on Rosa Parks. There's books on science and technology, what it means to be a woman in STEM education. So they, they have a variety of options that they can choose from. And I can literally tell you that our project that's under Confident Minds is Kids Take Five. And kids are able to take five books per week, and they are encouraged to read five minutes per day. Uh, so that's you know, the premises of actually getting access and gaining access to more education because that's what kids need more of is is a a sense of um, worthiness when we're talking about the education behind literacy. So, And I'm just curious, do you take a, a page out of your mother's book when it comes to <laughs> <laughs> making sure that work gets done? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the kids that enter Confident Girl Mentoring, because all of our sources, our resources are free, our programs are free, so kids do not, parents don't have to pay for right. programming. Uh, they're really spoiled <laughs> <laughs> okay. in a good way. And, and I'll, I'll take that word spoil out, and I can just say they are really loved. And something that they need is that love and sense of belonging. Um, you're listening to Buffalo What's Next. More to come right after this on WBFO. I'm Kraus Shallahorn with Mindful Music. 
Join me for thoughtful and in-depth conversation with my many different guests from around the region and the world as they discuss how music helps and heals in times of stress and everyday life. Listen to Mindful Music Saturdays at 4 p.m. right here on WBFO, your NPR station. When your company supports WBFO, your NPR station, it's not only good for business, it's good for the community too. You get results, and we keep producing quality local programming. Learn more by calling Bill Sauer at 716-845-2201. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're with uh, Tiffany Lewis from uh, Confident Girl Mentoring uh, this morning. So we're, we're, we're visiting your your place at uh, the Arthur Center. We got the books. Mm-hmm. Talk about what else, the, the type of environment you try to create mm. for these young ladies. Yes, so absolutely. So Confident Girl Mentoring is a safe place for healing and transformation. In my office, um, there's a uh, a small healing space, which we're, we're trying to grow. And what I do is I don't like to literally take kids, send kids to time out. We send them to a place of peace. And so in my space, I give them like a remote. And on the remote, there's like LED lights that's all across my office. And they turn the light to whatever mood that they're feeling, okay. whether it's red, green. I'm still trying to figure out orange. <laughs> but um, that lets me know where they are. And so I have these big oversized pillows that the kids can grab. And when they come into that healing space, there's five questions that the kids are asked. One, like, um, how are you feeling today? What do you need? What services can, can, you know, can we offer you? And sometimes they talk and sometimes they don't, which is okay because we force our kids to talk too much where sometimes they just want us to listen. And so they grab a big jumbo size oversized pillow and depend on what mood they're in. We have a real conversation um, as a trauma trainer. You know, I'm educated on how to have those uncomfortable conversations with our young people to provide them with a place of healing where they can get to where they need to be. Those uncomfortable conversations. Are, are there cues that you're picking up on? How, how do you know when to prod and when to back off a little bit? My thing is when kids trust you, kids share. I don't prod. They just talk because they feel a sense of, hey, I can trust her. Or there's something that may be uncomfortable. And instead of asking certain questions like, you know, what's wrong? It's more so what can I help you with? And once you say those things, it kind of gets them on the edge like, oh, okay, well, maybe she's not trying to prod. Maybe she's really just trying to help. And that's the narrative that we want to shift to when we're having open conversations and communications with our young people. It might be a little difficult to, to gauge this, but I'll, 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 I'll put it out there. You know, you, you mentioned about the, that presence of the of the phone and the internet and things like that and those types of things that I guess aren't necessarily all that peaceful 
But what about for young ladies, young ladies of color in the city? Are there other things that are breaking that peace that are troubling them? Do you find, I don't want to say generalities, but there are some themes that you keep encountering? Uh, when you're talking about... When you, when, again, you know, we're, you're trying to make a peaceful place, build some trust. We know that you know, the world is a crazy place, but what about their worlds, their neighborhoods, their families? Do, do you see themes inside these, these young ladies? Um, I would say that from a positive perspective, sure. the things that or themes that typically come up is um, just that sense of belonging. You know, kids sometimes feel out of place. They trying to fit in to environments and societies that makes it very difficult because us as the leaders, they look at us as the leaders, we don't have it together. So the commonality is that us as the adults, we have to first be that example to our young people. And once they see that, okay, we have it together or we are trying to have it together and create that thriving and healed community, it opens up a sense for them to be able to feel empowered and have like, hey, well, our communities can be healed and our communities can be thriving because the adults are getting it right. That's uh, encouraging to hear for sure that, that, that you're getting that sense. So what are, uh, without being overly specific, because there's a lot of confidentiality here, obviously, but what are some of the things that you're, you're hearing from young women? What are their what are they struggling with? Um, they're struggling with low self-esteem. They're struggling Where does that with, come from? What would you say? Um, honestly, it, it can come from home. Okay. It can come from if us as adults, I, can, I, I always go back to the adults, right? Because we're our first role model for our young people, right? And if our young people are seeing that us, we're body shaming ourselves or we're saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I don't look appropriate or I don't feel appropriate, then unfortunately, kids are hearing those things and they're picking up on those and saying, okay, well, maybe I don't feel, you know, as pretty as I mm -hmm. think I should be because they're hearing those examples from the home. And then also not just from the home, but also our environments. You know, there's so much that is going on. Our kids have it worse than we do when we were growing up. And it's, it's harder for them to adjust because our society is pushing the fact that maybe we don't have to. Social media plays a big part of it, you know, in, in the way that our young girls are, are being are raised. Some people are being raised on social media because that's what they're used to. That's what they're accustomed to. Um, and that we're just trying to break those cycles of mistrust with our, within the community as well. Yeah, that, I guess how do you... It's a big question. It's probably one that you try to tackle uh, every day. But how do you go about breaking, like you said, that, that kind of that circle there of sorts, mm -hmm. uh, that cycle uh, that we're uh, you're kind of describing there? How do you how do you go about trying to chisel away at that? Yeah, it's just really reengaging our youth. You know, creating organizations like Confident Girl Mentoring. You know, creating safe spaces for our kids to come to even just talk about their issues. Uh, creating environments that, you know, kids see that diversity is not just one way. We're not just looking at um, inequities. We're looking at equality. You know, how can we actually pull those things together to help our young people be in a more equitable space, um, you know, a more thriving space, a more healed space? It all goes back to safety. 
it all goes back to education, creating and, and also um, providing the resources for organizations like Confident Girl Mentoring to be able to help our future leaders, you know, be the best that they can be um, with unlimited resources. So that's another thing, too, is pouring into organizations that are really doing the critical work um, in our community to bring up and raise awareness for our young people. You said safety, you making them safety. safety. Is that a, a, a common theme? Is that something that these are, ki- the kids just don't feel safe? Kids don't feel safe. Um, I can't speak for all kids. Sure. Because, and I can't say that all homes are broken because they're not. Have some wonderful, loving homes, but some of the kids that I encounter don't come from those spaces. And a lot of our kids, they come to after school programs because they want to feel safe, because they need a meal. You know, and I'm not saying that that's everywhere across the board. I'm just talking about some of the kids that I engage with. There are some amazing young people in the organization who are now peer mentors for the younger kids. And there are some amazing young girls that have a heightened sense of self-confidence and self-worth that are uh, that provide resources even to myself. And it just also helps me heal. You know, and I just love those kids. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know that, that maybe you're turning the corner with a, with a young lady that, uh, like you said, she showed up and she didn't feel safe and she was dealing with some trauma. And how do you know that you're you're maybe seeing, you know, the uh, the light not at the end of the tunnel, but maybe a light to go follow? Uh, when kids are asking to. Uh, engage in programs like Mm. when they're saying can I lead the program today or can I be in the middle for at the end of our confident girl circle or you know how about this and when they start asking questions and when they want to do things that lets me know that it's working you know we often create programs without having our young people in mind but once we start asking our young people what they want we get better results and create programs centered around their needs versus what we think they need. Kids will tell you. Kids, excuse me, kids know when, you know, they can trust you. And, you know, kids know what they want. It's about listening and engaging with them on their needs. Our guest uh, this morning, if she'd like some water while she's (laughs) taking a break here, Tiffany Lewis from Confident Girl Mentoring uh, with us here on Buffalo What's Next. Uh, you did. Um, you mentioned uh, circles. Uh, are the sessions all group sessions? Are they one on one? Is it a combination? It's a combination of okay. both. Um, Confident Girl Mentoring. We are a group mentoring organization, but we do provide one on one mentoring services to the um, to the young girls, um, ages seven through nineteen is our primary population. We primarily service girls, but boys get jealous, so we do have co-ed <laughs> programs. Oh boy! Like our sports program, it's our Jump for Confidence program, okay. which is the only competitive jump rope program um, in Western New York. Yeah, I did see some of that on your on your on your website. There's some impressive uh, efforts there by yes. some of these young ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, these young people are so amazing. They're so talented, but it takes people like myself and others to bring those um, things out of our young people. And kids come in not even knowing how to jump rope, but then they leave knowing four or five tricks. 
and it's just so amazing. We have a competition every year. It's fully funded by our Ralph C. Wilson Legacy Funds, um, um, affiliated with Community Foundation, and they they pour resources in, you know, because they also understand and they believe in the vision as well. So, and we created a national day. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Hey, I wanted to talk to you about that because you, 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 <laughs> Tiffany Lewis created the National Youth Confidence Day. Yes, so National Youth Confidence Day. Um, there are so many things that our young people um, don't have. And I, I created this day to give them another sense of purpose, another sense of hope. Uh, the day is celebrated annually, October 20th. Out of 18,000 applications, our application was chosen and selected um, as a national day to provide those healing supports for our young people. And um, this year, we actually took it on the road. Really? That was always the goal of it, is to celebrate the day um, in different cities and states. And it's a national day, so it's celebrated nationally. Um, this year's theme was reimagine confidence. How do you reimagine confidence? And UCAN of Memphis, um, they actually won um, a grant, which was also provided by um, KeyBank um, Foundation to be able to have this amazing day for about a thousand kids in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, It was phenomenal. The energy was great. And uh, the young people really, really understood what it meant to be confident. (laughs) (laughs) I think you described it as being on fire. (laughs) On fire. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, just talking about these different things, you also have a a couple of tips that you wanted to to share here. Um, Why why don't you go through that a little bit uh, to maybe help some people understand kind of the whole complexity of what you're dealing with when you're trying to mentor these young ladies. Yes. So um, if we can imagine what a healed and thriving community would look like for our young people, um, there's some things that we need to understand on how to create a safe and inclusive um, healing space when kids are faced with trauma. And one thing that I can say is, one, kids feel safer when they're connected to a trusted adult. Um, I don't want to throw that word around loosely. Trusted means trust. Um, Also that... So it may or may not be a parent. It may not be a parent. Um, This young girl that I had encountered over six years ago, she was tall. I was a complete stranger, but she saw something in me that created that trust. She was able to open up. Um, Another thing is create a sense of belonging. Kids want to know and feel like they belong. You know, when we create those type of environments for our young people, then they're easily accessible to opening up more, you know, engaging more in conversation. And three is creating a culture of open communication. So, again, as I said earlier, shifting that conversation from what's wrong to what do you need. That actually gets kids from that fight, flight or fight response, and it lets them know, okay, wait a minute, they actually are concerned about me. So creating a healing, um, thriving space for our, our young people really starts with those three things, is listening, trying to understand, not listening to respond, but listening to understand um, is another thing. And also um, hope, like hope. Like for black and brown girls, there's a lot of talk about confidence, you know, but what about hope? 
hope for what, right? right. Hope for, you know, what we can do and see um, and be seen doing. Um, hope for the world with all its inequities, injustices, and oppressions. It's really hope for them. Those inequities and oppressions, does that come up in conversation? Does that, uh, is that something that's on the minds of a 12, 13-year-old girl? Yes. Really? <laughs> yes, it is. And What do they say? It's, it's more like, you know, why can't I fit in? You know, mm. why is this happening? You know, why are we targeted? You know, why? Do you hear, have you heard? Um, oh, yes. I mean, there's lots of oh, yes. trauma. There's well, a lot of trauma over censored around violence. Oh, 514. And before 514, you know, violence, you know, is is something that I, I am not a to, total expert you know, I can only talk about lived experiences and, and what my education has taught me, you know, about those oppressions, you know, and how can we bring those oppressions or or try to end those oppressions with our young people. And it really goes back to education. You know, it goes back to getting those books out of the Confident Minds library right. and, and reading those books and stuff, too, and, and talking with our families about our oppressions and what we're going through and what we've been faced with over these uh, many centuries. 12-year-old Tiffany Lewis, uh, were those weighing on your mind? Oppression, inequity, was that weighing on your mind when you were 12? No, I think what was weighing on my mind at 12 years old was um, how do I get healing for the things that I had been going through? How do I speak out? You know, 12-year-old Tiffany um, you was didn't a, have was anybody. A hurt, was you didn't a hurt have anybody. Tiffany. You didn't have anybody to talk to. I mean, I could. I trust my mom, you know. But how can twelve-year-old Tiffany go to my mom, to her mother, and say, "Oh, she's hurting," you know? Although I trust my mom, sure. You know, I didn't really have another outlet because I never want to disappoint my mom. I never want to see my mom hurt. And I knew because of the love that my mom has for me, if I'm hurting, she's hurting. You know, so I didn't want to put my oppressions sure. <laughs> on my mom. Um, Sounds so. like 12, even when you were 12, you had a great sense of responsibility on your shoulders. I, <laughs> at 12 years, I listened. I, my brother was sick. You know, I had I, I knew early on that my mom needed help. And I had to be that great daughter, you know, for not just my mom, but also for myself, too. And having those principles help me now in my adult years to be the best person that I know how to be. You most certainly are doing some impressive work here. Um, we're coming down to our final moments. And I just, uh, I don't have to ask you if you have hope because I, I, you, you, uh, you radiate it uh, from the moment I met you this morning. Um, but at the same time, what about our city and our community you, you ha I think I think you have that feeling that if you can deal with a, a young person one on one, you can make some some progress and help. But what about this community? What do we need to do moving forward? Moving forward, I believe that we as a community need to take these real issues that our young people are facing. We need to carry them on our shoulders and provide real tangible results and supports to our young people. And that will do it for today's Summertime Producer Picks episode. We would like to thank our guests, Michelle Raglan and Tiffany Lewis. If you missed this and you'd like to hear it again, a reminder, this program is a podcast. 
you can get it wherever you get your podcast or the Amplify BTPM app. And each episode is also online on demand at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is Charles Gilbert. Thanks for listening.